Okay, so we are going through uh, Zechariah 11 to 13. So I'm going to read some of the scripture. Um, and so it starts with this very weird kind of object lesson. Um, so uh, this is not a vision. This is uh, in times of prophecy, sometimes the prophets would be called by God to literally act out an object lesson. Um, so we see that in Zechariah 11. You know, it says, Thus says the Lord my God. He's speaking to the Lord my God. He's speaking to Zechariah, right? He says, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Um, so I became shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named favor, the other named, I named union. And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those who are being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. This is an intense <laughs> object lesson here. You're reading this. You're like, man, what is encouraging about this at all? There's literally nothing encouraging about this. But, you know, we're going to dig into this a little bit and, and see kind of what it points to. So one of the first questions we have to ask when we're trying to interpret this is what, what is what the heck is this about? What is this analogy you know, and just to kind of review and summarize what happens, God calls Zechariah to be the shepherd of a flock. So there are flocks at some points who are, you know, uh, destined for slaughter. So this is flocks that are marked like, okay, this, these are the ones we're going to eat. So we're going to sacrifice. So, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're, I wouldn't want to be in that flock, right? Um, and so, you know, Zechariah is called to be a shepherd of them and sort of save them from the situation. And so he comes in and he, he's trying to flock, you know, shepherd this flock and he's, you know, cleaning out house and he's removing these under shepherds, you know, that are not doing their job well. And so he does all these things, but it says the flock detested him, uh, detested the shepherd, right? And so he's, he's getting friction with the, the, the flock. The flock doesn't, you know, love him. He's actually rejecting him. And so, you know, at some point he says, I give up, you know, just, you know, y'all want to do this? Just, you know, y'all want to reject me? Then go and do your own thing then, you know? And so he leaves them and, and he gives, hands them over to their fates. Um, of what they were originally to, to be slaughtered. And it's, it's a very intense kind of image here. And the question is, what is it about? You know, because he, he doesn't actually interpret, he doesn't tell you, oh, this is what it's about. What is it about? Well, there are two possible options. I realized I just put one for both. <laughs> so that was a mistake on my part. Um, there are two possible, yeah, maybe that's why you guys are looking at that. Like some of you guys are like, hmm, well, that's, that's a interesting, okay, numbering system here. 
uh, one, you know, very plausible kind of way that people have interpreted this and probably the original context, you know, this is how you would understand it is it was looking back to the exile. Um, you know, Yahweh here, God of Israel was the shepherd. And he's saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I shepherded you. I took care of you. I nurtured you. And I had these two staffs favor, one representing grace, like my love for you. And one representing unity, you know, the unity between um, Judah and Israel and all that. And, and he's like, yeah, because you detested me, because you rejected me, you know, over and over and over again, over years and years and years. And we see that, we know that very well in the story of the Bible, that it leads to this time of exile where God, you know, very hard, you know, in very intense words, he rejects his people for a time being, right? And he sends them off. And he allows the Babylonians to come and take over the people and take them into exile. And as we remember, Zechariah is written after that period when they are coming back to exile and God is restoring them once again. So one possibility is it's definitely is talking about the exile. Um, but I think, you know, there are some aspects of this passage that don't seem to completely fit. You know, and, and so there are a lot of people who look at this and, and they see references perhaps just looking forward to perhaps something else. Um, let me show you some of the references in this passage that, you know, people have thought maybe this is talking about the Messiah who's going to come. And the shocking realization that the Messiah, Messiah who is the shepherd, um, is going to be rejected by his people. We see that actually paralleled in the New Testament as Jesus comes. Um, we see that Jesus is this Davidic Messiah. He's born of David. He, he calls himself, I am the good shepherd. And he makes that, that connection very clean, very clear as we see. And we see, unfortunately, as we all know, that the reality is that the flock rejects the shepherd. You know, they, they, they like him while he's healing and doing these things, but ultimately they come to reject him because they, you know, he disappoints them. He doesn't fully fulfill what they want. And so we see this, this horrific scene um, in the end of Matthew, you know, as it depicts, you know, that the crowd, the people of Jerusalem, who, you know, a few days ago had just welcomed him in as king, are now saying, crucify him. You know, they're shouting, they're putting their fists up, you know, and, and there's this image of Pilate bringing out this prisoner, Barabbas, and he's saying, you know, shall we release, you know, Christ or Barabbas? Like giving them an easy option, you know, Christ has done nothing wrong, you know, he's healed, he's saved, or Barabbas. And here we see the, the vitriol and the hate of the crowd as they shout, crucify him, crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. So the flock rejects the shepherd. And we see an aspect of that echoed in Zechariah, that this is an image of what is to come. We see a very, very specific reference in Zechariah. You know, I, I don't know if you caught it, but it talks about, you know, when after he was rejected as a shepherd, it says, you know, give me my wages, you know, for what I've done, right? And, and they give him 30 prices of silver. And there's a little bit of sarcasm there. It says the lordly price at which I was, I was priced at. You know, it's sarcasm because it's like, that's all I mean to you is 30 pieces of silver. And the significance of that number is that that was the amount to be paid for the death of a slave. Um, and so there was kind of this valuation that you're, you know, that's how we see you is, is this kind of value of a slave. And we see incredibly this fulfilled. And this is one of the main pointers for me that this is talking about something more than perhaps, um, you know, what was happening in the moment about Jesus um, is this reality that Jesus also was sold 
for 30 pieces of silver. A very like very specific number, a very specific image is used to point us to say, hey, this is maybe about Jesus. As we see in Matthew 26, 14, 15, that uh, what Judah, Judah actually comes, right? Judas actually comes and, and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrays them to the Pharisees. And that's the price at which Jesus is, uh, you know, that Judas uh, gives away Jesus, this Messiah, the Son of God, you know, for 30 pieces of silver, sold as a slave. We see further implications of that in Zechariah 13. Um, as a shepherd analogy kind of continues, it's echoed in other different places. A few chapters later, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so there's this image of the shepherd, the leader, the Messiah being struck. And finally, this is, I think, the most incredible passage in this book. You know, one that I just, when I read it again, I'm just like, I can't believe this is actually in there. Um, but I will read it out. It says, and I will pour out in the house of David, inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I mean, this is just a passage that just blows my mind with how specific and this kind of picture um, it, that, that's kind of that God is sort of giving. I'm going to just bring out four different aspects of this. Um, first, on him whom they have pierced. I see that as a direct reference to the crucifixion and to the piercing of Jesus by the Roman soldier. Um, he's literally, you know, pierced. The weeping over him as an only child. Um, again, another crazy reference. I'm like, how do you understand this apart from Christ? Um, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and as a firstborn. And again and again, Jesus is spoken of as the son of God, as the, you know, to use figurative language, the firstborn of God, the, the only child, the only one of God. Um, that is how he's consistently seen through scriptures. Third, I think um, what's crazy about this passage is the Hebrew is pretty ambiguous here that um, when it says, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, it's clear from the passage, the speaker is Yahweh, is God himself. And so the, the ancient people really struggled with this passage, you know, theologically, because they're like, uh, you know, this, this can't be, <laughs> how can God be pierced? You know, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, given our understanding of God as a sovereign God who is, you know, who is in control of all things. And, you know, we've talked about that as we've been reading through prophecies. And here is God pierced. God's wounded. God maimed. God put to death, perhaps even. And so they, you know, the, even though Hebrew is pretty clear on that, you know, the, the, um, the interpreters really struggled with that. And they'd be like... Maybe, maybe there's like a weird pronoun change here. You know, maybe that's not really what it's meant. Um, but grammatically, it's pretty clear that, yeah, they will look on me, Yahweh, on him whom they have pierced. And so that's an indication that the one who is pierced is God himself, right? And finally, another amazing aspect of this passage is the one, is the people who do the piercing, right? The people who are responsible for piercing Yahweh. And here it's clear. It's not the enemy's, God, it's not the Babylonian empire. 
Who is it that has pierced God? On him, on him whom they have pierced. Well, the they is very clearly referring to the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem. What's shocking about this passage is it reveals the one who betrays God, who does harm to God in this kind of way, who pierces God, will be God's own people. Uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem themselves, the people of God's city, so, so to speak, themselves. And so I think you see in Zechariah a very powerful picture of the shepherd rejected, the shepherd pierced, um, and this, this amazing <laughs> prophecy of um, an echo of what Jesus would suffer and what he would experience. But there's more to this passage, right? And as you and you saw, there's another aspect of it, which I think is difficult to talk about. And, you know, I wanted to avoid talking about it, but <laughs> it's in the passage. So, you know, I can't avoid talking. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be right to do that. Um, and it's this aspect that doesn't seem to fit at, immediately with uh, the story of Jesus. And that's the fact that the shepherd actually rejects the flock, right? And some of you guys are like, yeah, that's the part of the passage. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about there? Like, how does that fit, you know? Yeah, it says, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh and the Lord. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus is like, yeah, you know what? I give up on you guys. You know, that doesn't sound right. Right. And then, and I think before we kind of get into that, of course, that's not fully the picture of the gospel. I think there's a little bit here that we skip over as Christians because we are not Jews. We are not in Israel. And so we get to the gospel and we hear about it and we're like, okay, that's cool. Jesus died for me. Good to know. But the scriptures and what Jesus spent a lot of time talking about was actually the impending destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. He was saying, you know, he preached that, yeah, you are guys are going to reject me. And because you guys are going to reject me, you are going to suffer, you know, like a, a judgment in some ways. Um, in Luke 19, this is what Jesus himself is speaking. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in and of every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So all these gospels account that when Jesus was approaching the city, he breaks down and he starts weeping. He starts weeping because he understands that, yeah, they're about to reject him. Jerusalem is about to crucify him. But what he's weeping for isn't his own crucifixion. What he's weeping for is he knows the consequence of their rejection of him is going to be utter destruction for their nation. And he's, and he's you know, he knows that's going to happen. He knows it's just, but he's weeping over it, right? And that's the, <laughs> that's the picture that we don't necessarily always talk about and see. The reality was that this was fulfilled in a very, very clear way in history um, in AD 70, about 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, um, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed in this like traumatizing events that would haunt the Jewish people for centuries, millennia afterwards. AD 70, what happens was that after a series of rebellions by the Jews against the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire finally had enough. And so Titus, the general, came, they, they surrounded, they besieged the city, 
And this is like one of those events that even the most historians would say is like one of the most brutal events ever happens to like anybody. Um, and it's one of the just seared in the memory of the Jewish people. They besieged them for a year to the point in which there was massive starvation and there was cannibalism going on within the city. Um, the, the people that were trying to escape were being crucified. Um, Counts said that they were crucifying people about 500 a day um, by the Roman soldiers. Finally, when the Roman soldiers finally got in, they bent on vengeance because they were so just, you know, uh, because they had, they, you know, they struggled so much with these people that they just went to town. They, they massacred um, the, the innocent civilians within the city. They went to the temple. They set it on fire. They sacrificed a pig in front of it. Um, you know, it's just blasphemous, like vicious stuff that they would do, you know, and they completely leveled the city to the ground and they took the Jewish people and they scattered them as slaves across the Roman Empire. And when we talk about the first exile being bad, this one was even more traumatizing. And the reality is that for 2,000 years, the Jewish people did not have their own lands. That was, you know, if we talk about the exile being 70 years, this was 2,000 years, right? Where, is, where the Jewish people were scattered across Europe, across all kinds of different places. There was no temple anymore. There has been no temple since AD 70, 2,000 years ago. Um, there hasn't been any sacrifice. And the Jewish people have had to sort of, those who did not become Christian, they had to sort of reckon and understand, like, how do we, how do we make sense of God abandoning us in this kind of dramatic and incredible way? So it was fulfilled, right? Um, and actually what's interesting um, in modern history is that within the last 50 years, we're actually seeing... Um, and people interpret this in many different ways. We see the return of Jews to the land of Israel. And we're seeing kind of Jerusalem being built up again. Um, it was an inhabit, like a very small village, an uninhabited place for a while. And there are even talks of building another temple. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to theologically kind of discuss what that means or interpret that, you know. But it's incredible to me that, you know, this, this is not just talk in scripture, right? This happens. And all of these things, you know, from Jesus being rejected to the rejection of Israel, the destruction of Israel as a result of that happens. But you might say, okay, what are we going to take from this, right? This sounds like a very discouraging thing, you know, you know, the Jews rejecting Jesus and then them experiencing this kind of harsh discipline, this harsh punishment as a result. You know, is, is, that, is that it? Is that all that we take from this, that you know, God punishes those who, you know, reject him. Is, is that it? And of course not, right? That's not the gospel. That's not the story of scripture. And Zechariah actually doesn't give us more beyond that. Zechariah just leaves us there with that picture and doesn't really help us to reconcile how we might understand this. Um, that's why we go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus was actually crucified, people were starting to think and understand why this happened and how this happened and what was the purpose perhaps behind the crucifixion of Jesus. So Peter, you know, he, he speaks about this, his very first message he delivers to the very people in Jerusalem who crucified Jesus. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves knows, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, what a sermon, right? He just straight up accuses them. It's like, yeah, this man who did all these things, he was innocent, you crucified and killed. But guess what? It was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't just that you guys messed up and you rejected him. Yeah, you guys did mess up and you did reject him. And that is a horrific thing that you did, guys. That's what Peter's saying. But it was according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God here. God is doing something even in the midst of your rejection with him that y'all could not even understand, right? And what is that thing? Well, you know, a few years, you know, decades later, Paul comes along, the Apostle Paul, and, you know, he's this man trained in the Jewish law, and he's trained in all these things, and he writes a letter to explain this is why it happened. This is why this was part of the plan the whole time. This is part, this is why this was God's purpose, even in this wicked action. And he says this in Romans 3, he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a perpetuation by his blood to be received by faith, whom God put forward as a perpetuation by his blood. So Paul at this point is talking about, yes, you guys crucified him, but God, his hand himself was in that process. And as you guys were doing that, because you hated him because of your wickedness, he's speaking to the Jews, right? God was doing it for a greater purpose, for love, as a perpetuation by his blood. Now, the word perpetuation, I think I need to explain. It's not a word we just go around, you know, it's not a common word in English, well, perpetuation, you know, it's not. Um, what does that word mean? What is it a translation of? Well, it's a translation of a very specific image in the Bible, and that's the image of this mercy seat. So in the Old Testament, you know, the presence of God would be centered around this object called the ark, this golden box, right? And then this, the cover of that would be called the mercy seat. And that's the place in which God, what God's presence would dwell, you know, where Moses would come in, and, or not Moses, technically, it was Aaron who would come in, the high priest, and there they would, you know, they would, they would deal with God. And on the holiest, holiest day, it's called Day of Atonement, what would happen is that the high priest who would come in would come and pour blood on that spot, the mercy seat, as an act of propitiation, right? So what propitiation means is a covering, a, a satisfying of the justice for the transgressions and the sins of the people. And so on that day, the, the high priest would come and he would pour blood. And in that way, it was the symbolic sign that for the death, you know, for the, for the sins of all that people have done, there is a requirement of death of something innocent. Um, this was an ancient kind of understanding that sin and evil and wickedness is not consequentless. Sin and evil does damage, right? It, it hurts. It causes pain um, either to people or to God. It, it, you know, it damages the reputation of God in some ways. And that there needs to be reparation. There needs to be satisfaction of justice. This is a very strong principle in scripture over and over again is talked about. And so in in Romans, we come to understand that the death of Jesus Christ was not just this rejection of this man, but was this intentional purpose by God to sacrifice an innocent man, his own son, for the sake of a guilty world. 
I think that's just something I've just been meditating on. You know, that idea that the, the consequence to sin, the weight of sin, and the idea that, yeah, that reparation has to happen through the death of the innocents. And that's something they would have understood in the day, you know, when every time they had to kill an animal or a lamb or a bull that did nothing, that did not deserve to die, you know, in some ways it was a, it was a reflection of the destructiveness of human sin. And I think we see that today, right? I think it's not an alien concept for us. I think the hardships that we've seen the world suffer through in the last few months, you know, from, from the shootings that were occurring, from the war that's in Ukraine, from other atrocities that are being perpetuated, in all those instances, we see that the innocent suffer, right? We see that there are consequences to sin. There's consequences to the reality of sin. And that's, I think, also a strong picture for us today, the reality of what sin is and what sin does. Um, and so there's, there is a plan by God to put forward an innocent man, Jesus, to atone for um, the sins of a guilty world. And that's kind of the purpose of what's going on here. Furthermore, there is some more stuff here that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, Paul talks about in Romans, he talks about this really interesting you know, this is some chapters that I think most people don't like to read in Romans because it talks about predestination and everyone's like, I don't know what this is talking about and all this. But the point of this passage is actually to talk about the Jews and to answer this question, but what about the Jews? Does God not love them anymore? Does God not, does God have really abandoned them? And Paul's answer is no. There is purpose behind even their rejection um, that God is working in. It says that the disobedience of Israel leads actually to the salvation for everybody. This is Romans, I think, 11. He says, so I asked, did they stumble the Jews in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What a wild concept, right? He was saying that, like, ironically, because the Jews rejected Jesus, that through that process, that the gospel went to the ends of the world, and all these people who previously weren't included in this message are now included, are now hearing about how they have an opportunity to be part of the people of God. And it ends with this amazing phrase where it says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, might have mercy on us all. So there is a purpose in what God is doing here. And finally, in Zechariah, we see, um, we see a future picture of the revival of Jerusalem. And this is not something I want to go into too much, but I want to point that out, that even in Zechariah, in the very passages talk about God rejecting his people, there is a picture of this one day revival and this restoration of his people. In Zechariah 12, it says, the Lord who stretches out the heaven, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms a human spirit within them, says, declares, I will, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. And there's this kind of picture of this great day of battle in which Jerusalem will be defended by God himself. And then here's the passage that we looked at. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Don't miss this, right? So that when they look on him, on him they appear, they shall mourn for him. And so very much in this passage we see this picture that one day, this prophecy that the nation of Israel, Jews, the Jewish people are going to have a revival. They're going to mourn over what, whom they have pierced. 
into me, pouring out of grace and pleas of mercy, and this great atonement, this great returning to God from the Jewish nation. Uh, and that's also something we don't always talk about. Um, but it's amazing that that is also prophesied in scripture. That that's not the end of things, that the Jews are going to come back. Make something clear to, you know, come talk to me afterwards about it. Uh, I want to give us a few reflection points for us about, you know, as we reflect on this image of God himself pierced. I think the first thing we want to reflect on is the cost of sin, the weight of sin. Um, that the reality of sin is that it results in damage, results in cost. And the cost of it was God himself pierced, was God's own son put to death. Um, innocent man for our sake. And I think what's difficult for us a lot of times when I talk to people for us to embrace about this is that we find so much distance between ourselves in that event. We're like, well, yeah, I mean, they crucified him, but I, you know, I wasn't there. You know, like I wouldn't have done it. You know, I'm not that kind of a person. You know, we think that. Um, and I don't know, like I have no way of thinking whether we would have been part of the crowd shouting crucify him at that moment. But I want to say this, right? I think sometimes we think, oh, we're not, you know, I didn't directly reject him. I didn't do those things. But I think what we still need to understand is that our sins necessitated his death. Even if we weren't the ones to put him to death, you know, our sins and our transgressions against God resulted in the need for God to have to put to death his own son. And I think that's the crux of Christianity, that when we come to understand that for ourselves, not just this theological reality that, yeah, God died for humanity. And yeah, I guess I believe that. When we come to understand for ourselves that no, Christ died for me. That Christ died for the ways in which I have transgressed and I've hurt and I've damaged and I've not lived. I've fallen short of the glory of God. We come to understand that was for me. <laughs> yes, it was for the world, but I was part of that. I hold part of that responsibility. My life, my actions necessitated the, 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 the death of God. I mean, it's an incredible thing, I think, when we relate on, when we think about that. And the purpose of that is not necessarily just to make us feel bad for the sake of making us feel bad, but to have us to consider the consequences of what we do and how we live. Second, I think... I think there's this incredible picture of God's grace in our worst moments. I think it's crazy that the symbol for, Christ, uh, for Christianity is the cross. It's a torture device. <laughs> it's an execution device. I mean, we make it look all nice and pretty, you know? but it's like, it's just, it's a bizarre image to have this essential image of your religion, right? Um, and every time we look at it, we're supposed to be reminded of this horrific image of literally the worst moment of humanity when we as humanity put to death God, right? Jesus, son of God. That's, it's like, it's like being reminded of your worst failure, you know, every time you think about it, right? What's so amazing to me is that God chooses to use that as a symbol for Christianity, as the heart of Christianity 
not because he just wants to shame us. He wants to just remember that time you really messed up. <laughs> remember, remember what, 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 you know, how bad you are and why you, no, 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 no. I think it's crazy to me because through what Jesus did, that symbol becomes the greatest symbol of God's character and God's love and God's grace. God takes the worst moment in humanity and he uses that to show the depths and the extent of his sacrificial love. And what we remember when we remember the cross is no longer, yeah, we're just epic failed and we messed up really bad there. But we remember is how God loved humanity, broken sinful humanity so much that he put, he gave himself up for death so that we may live. And that's what we celebrate with communion. We're about to celebrate it with, again, a bizarre image, right? We're eating the flesh of Jesus. We're drinking his blood. I mean, this is crazy stuff. But it's meant, you know, to show us the depths and the extent in which God loves us, the extent in which God will go to redeem and love his people. God's grace in his worst moments. I think it's the fullest image and the fullest reeling living out of that famous phrase in Genesis, what man means for evil, God means for good. What, what a crazy concept, right? I, I don't find this in any, like any other philosophy or religion. You know, people have made fun of this concept because it's so controversial, but that's the heart of Christianity that what man means for evil, God actually means for good. And I'm not saying the evil stops being evil. You know, it's still evil. It still sucks, right? It's still bad. Um, but there is this beautiful reality of what God is able to do, God's grace in our worst moments. And finally, I think, I think it, it should give us the sense of constantly grace versus cheap grace. There's this man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived about 70 years ago during the time of Nazi Germany. He was a German. And during that time, you know, the, the German church, you know, most Germans at the time, believe it or not, during the Holocaust, during Nazi Germany, were Christian. They were Lutheran Christian, right? And one of the sort of beliefs, you know, one of the things that, you know, the church had taught at the point was they had taught grace. They taught that you weren't justified by your works. They taught that you were justified by your grace, right? Uh, by God's grace. But, but Bonhoeffer goes and he says, this is a cheap grace. This is a cheap grace. Because it's a grace that, you know, what was happening in the moment was that the people were just accepting grace, but they weren't accepting change. They're accepting grace, but they weren't accepting discipleship. They're accepting grace, but they weren't accepting the full extent of what God had called them to do. And so he calls this passive Lutheran church out for siding with the Nazis and for watching 6 million of their fellow citizens and brothers being killed. And he says, no, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not Christianity. Um, that's what Bonhoeffer says. He says, no, if you understand the gospel, you understand it's not cheap grace. It's not just God's like, oh, okay, free for all. Everyone's just forgiven. No, if you understand the cost of what Jesus did, you understand the brutality of what sin does. You understand the reality of what that means. You're not going to take grace lightly. And he says that if you understand the gospel, you understand what that all means. You're going to live in a costly way as well. And so he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he says, no, every Christian who's received grace, you know, has also received this call to come and die, to come and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to, and to give up ourselves just in the same way that Jesus did, you know, for the good, for the world around us, for God's glory.
And I think, brothers and sisters, I think that's the call I have for us today. You know, the call that I want to challenge us today. You know, have we indulged? Have we perhaps just become a people of cheap grace? You know, the irony is that it's the problem isn't that we accept grace so much that it becomes cheap. No, it's, it's that we don't fully understand grace. And we just see it as this light thing. Oh, you're forgiven. No worries. You know, and I think it's through reflecting on the cost of what everything, reflecting on this passage, I think we're able to see perhaps, you know, the, the weight of what God did and the weight of what God calls us to do. So that's the challenge I have for you guys. I have, you know, a challenge for us as a church is what does it look like to live like Jesus did to, 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 to carry our cross, to bear our cross, right? Even as we go into this world. Challenge for me, I've been specifically thinking about this is what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to sacrifice? Am I just not going to follow Jesus every time it's inconvenience? I think that's a big challenge for me, right? Um, with so many times in, in American Christianity, we're just like, yeah, I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't get into my plans, get, get in the way of my plans. I think if we're thinking that way, if we've completely misunderstood who God is and what God has called us to do. So let's pray. Um, I'll pray for us. And then uh, worship team is going to come up. We're actually going to take communion in a second. Lord, uh, Lord, we just thank you, God, for your sacrifice. Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us. Lord, I just... Yeah, I just pray for just what we talked about just now. That, Lord, that we would just go to the cross and that we would remember again the price for which we were bought. God, I just feel like for so many of us in, in America, we just, we just get so hardened And we be, it's so easy to just become comfortable and we forget. We forget the reality of our sin and what it cost. God, I just pray that you would restore that to us again that you would humble us again. And that you would show us the just incredible love that you have for us in what you have done for us. God, help us just to take grace seriously. And help us to joyfully, Lord, just be willing to bear the cross with you because that's what you call us to do. You call us not to be friends with sin. It's the very sin that 
put you to such harm that pierced you. You call us to be changed. You call us to be transformed. You call us to leave behind the ways of the world, the sins and the things we used to live in. God, I just pray for that over us, God, that we would be not a people of cheap grace, a people that merely just live in theological understanding alone. I pray that you would convict us, move us, and show us what it looks like to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.